0: The rest of you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, which is where we'll be. There's also a handout for you if you want to follow along, if that's helpful for you. Can I just say, sitting in the back of the room, um, it's fun to see you break out spontaneously in applause to Scripture. Thank you, guys, for leading us uh, in that. Man, it's good to hear Scripture read. It's, it's a part of what we do as a church, is to give ourselves to the public reading of Scripture and just to read an awesome passage, it's inspiring, and we just kind of spontaneously go, yes, that's so true, and to clap for that is pretty awesome. All right, so I say white elephant, and you think lame gift, right? I should bring a lame gift, and I'm planning on receiving a lame gift. That's what you should. I'll just set the expectation right now. If you go to a gift exchange party of some sort this year, my son went to one last night. He goes, yeah, they had a gift exchange. I'm like, well, did you know that? Did you bring anything he goes, no, the mom provided all the gifts. I'm like, what? What kind of gift exchange is that? So, anyways, he he scored. He ended up with something. But if if you go to a gift exchange, you really have to understand the rules and what the expectations are. Because if there's a a dollar limit, let's say let's say fifteen or twenty dollars is the range that you're expected to to do, then you're going to go and pick something out like that. And if you end up with like you know Santa toilet paper or something, you're really really bummed out by that, right? Because you thought, wait a minute, that can't be $15 even on sale. Like, you know, there's no way the math works out. Um, But if you go to a white elephant and it's known, like, it's gonna be just junky, like, plan on bringing bad stuff, that makes for a lot happier campers. I know because I've hosted these year after year as a youth pastor. Uh, We always had a rule in our house with every gift exchange. Before we started, we said, you know, here are the rules. And the last rule was this. You cannot leave your junk at Dave's house. Because true story, I would go to my garage after we hosted a, a Christmas party and tons of the gifts were still sitting in my garage. They didn't even want to bring them home. That's how bad they were. You know, life is filled with all kinds of exchanges and some more important than others. Uh, this morning, the text is really going to talk about some life-altering exchanges that go on. If you've not been tracking with us or if you have, just by way of reminder, we're in this series of Romans that we're calling Colossal Truths. And they're colossal, they're big, because they're big in scope, and they're really weighty in importance. Remember, not all truth is the same. You can have things that are true, and then things that are true. They're equally true, but they're not equally weighty. They're not equally urgent to us. After sort of this intro, what Paul is doing in Romans 1.18 through 3.20, is he is laying out a case, like a defense lawyer would catch this, against all of humanity that all of humanity is wicked. That's where he's going with this. That's why this first column we have here is ruin. This opening section of Romans um, is building a case that human beings are declared wicked apart from Christ. Remember a couple of weeks ago that I told you that the gospel offends the basically good crowd, right? So people who think that, we're generally good. Um, the gospel is offensive to that. I was out shopping. We're trying to color coordinate a family photo for all 11 of us. This is a nightmare. This is tough for us. I was at the store the other day, and I saw this. And it cracked me up because I was thinking of this exact point that I was about to make on Sunday. When you begin talking morality with people, some common things emerge from those conversations. If you ask someone, are you a good person? The more combative among us will say this, well, I'm better than you, right? I mean, they'll just, they'll go right at it. They'll start beating on you, right? But most people say something along these lines, yeah, I think I'm basically a good person. Now, just in that response, which is is a fun, interesting way, not everyone has this personality, but you can strike this up at Taco Bell. By the way, they took away my Taco Bell. I don't know where I'm going to eat now. But you can just strike this up with people sitting next to you at Taco Bell. It's it's actually really a fascinating, fun thing to do. Um, But people so many times will say, yeah, I think I'm basically good. And a couple of things immediately jump out with that. Why does someone include the word basically? Isn't that a little bit self-incriminating? I'm basically good. Well, let's get into the basically. And then they always say this too. They always say something along the lines of, I think. I'm, I'm basically a good person. Yeah, I think I am. And and that brings up this question. Are you a fair judge of yourself? Secondly, and maybe far more importantly, does your opinion about whether you're good or not even matter? Is that in play with the discussion? The gospel offends our basic human goodness. Now, in drama and literature, we have the tragic flaw, or "to err is human." In psychology, we have something called the human predicament. And sociologists often regard people as victims. Have you heard this? Right, pointing to failures of society and government and laws and hereditary issues and environmental issues and all kinds of things. What these all scream is: from every corner, in every field, in every study, we understand this: we are flawed. We are broken, and we know it. Paul has humans much more active in their role of their misfortune than most voices that you will hear suggest. In the passage we're looking at, and I'm going to reach back into Ben's passage a little bit because there's such flow. It's very difficult to break this letter that was written as a single thought into different weeks, but we'd be here for five hours at a chunk if we didn't. But in this passage we're going to look at three times, he very explicitly talks about the ability to know and experience God, and yet tragically, three times, human beings exchanged what was given to them in exchange for a fake. So if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three trades, as it were, and the devastating effects that they had. We call this first section ruin because it accurately describes the human condition apart from Christ. Theologists call this the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean that everything about us is all bad, but if you take a glass of water and you drop a little eyedropper of poison in that glass of water, do you see that that? corrupts utterly to the uttermost? So the doctrine of total depravity says this. It's not only that we're unable to submit to God and do good, catch this, it's that we're unwilling to. Apart from Christ and his mercy, we are unable to fulfill the righteousness God demands and has for us, and we're unwilling to. Last week I heard the preacher call me utterly helpless, and he told me to take a hike. And I think he pretty much nailed it. He was trying to drive home the point of total depravity. Here's what Paul's doing here in this section. He's sort of setting up his listeners. Remember, he's in Rome, and he's writing mostly to Jewish Christians, although there would be other Gentiles there as well. But what he's doing is he's taking the spotlight, and he's shining it on those Gentiles. And the flow of thought here is this. These Gentiles sin in these wicked ways. And the Jews that would have been with him would have said, Yeah! Stick it to those Gentiles, Paul! Get them! Here's why he's setting them up. If you were to read chapter 2, verse 1, which is where we're going next week, here's what he does. He takes the spotlight after he just gets everyone worked into a while, saying, Yeah, those Gentiles sin so wickedly. And he turns and he spotlights the Jews, and he would put himself in that. So he, so he turns on them, and here's what he's doing. He's saying this, that specific sins vary, but the degree of depravity and ruin and lostness is the same. We're going to look today at those Gentiles. Most of us are those Gentiles in this room, who are apart from God, who didn't have the law, who just birthed wickedness in all kinds of new and inventive ways. Next week we'll look at, at the Jews. And what these two camps sort of represent are these people. It's those who have snubbed God and said, I am fine without God. If God's even real, I'm gonna take my chances and live my, my life my way. And they shake their tiny rebellious fist at God and they live their life that way. It's a prodigal son who takes inheritance, runs off, and spends it on wild living. Next week we're gonna look at the religious folks. The religious moralist folks. These are the people who turn their noses at those people. These are the people who shove their self-righteousness above everything else, and they're the judge, and they're God. And what Paul is going to say is similar to what we see, frankly, in the the two sons of the, the prodigal son story, that whether you've pulled away from God and are living in utter rebellion, or whether you're right up close but haven't come into the feast, haven't become part of the family, you're equally lost. Your sins, the the names of your sins are different. But your lostness is to the same degree. And he's moving to this conclusion in Romans 3.23. For all have what? Sinned. Not basically kind of messed up a tiny bit. For all have sinned. God speaks into this. Here's the challenging thing about this section of Scripture. We're here for a few weeks, and aside from a couple of weeks ago where we looked at the glory of the gospel and not being ashamed of it, built into the text is not the gospel. So I want to pull us out of the text just for a moment and say this, that, that God gloriously and lovingly speaks into the mess that he finds us in. These are Jesus' words. talked to you about this two weeks ago, John 3.16. He says, I love you, and I've provided a remedy. And remember, it's an invitation and a warning all at once. This most famous of all passages. Hey, isn't Jesus loved? Didn't he so love the world that he sent his son? And they know that much. And we, as Christians, maybe quote that much. But built right into this most famous of texts is an invitation to come and a warning of wrath for those who don't. Condemnation for sin. Um. <coughs> First drive last week, not Thursday's game, but last week of the Raiders-Bills game. Um, This is how interesting it is as a Cowboys fan right now. They're blowing people out so much that I'm turning to other games I really don't care about. Becky made this comment. Why are you watching the Raiders and Bills? And I said, well, because, you know, The Cowboys are just blowing people away, and they weren't on at the time, and so I have to kind of get my fix elsewhere where hopefully there's some challenge. I'm kidding. I know some of you are like, man, those Cowboys fans really are obnoxious. I'm trying to rile you up a little bit. All right, Bills Raiders. First drive of the game, there's a flag. For those of you new new to American football, when a yellow flag is tossed out, that means there's a penalty that's been observed, okay? So a flag is tossed out. And here's what the ref said, and I don't think I've ever heard this before. I know we have some hardcore football fans. Maybe you've heard this before. But I heard something that actually caught my ear. He said this. He said, after being warned on the – he said, illegal formation on this offensive lineman um, after being warned on the previous play. And I thought, what? The ref was saying this. I called a foul on a guy because he didn't stand in a straight line. You have to be in a straight line, and the replay shows he was clearly not in a straight line, the most basic of things, right? But he added this bit that I warned him. It's like the ref saying, I warned him on the previous play. He didn't heed the warning, and so I threw the flag. It was a really interesting play and caught my ear. I actually rewound it and watched it again because I'm like, I don't remember hearing refs normally say that. Now, here's what I found really, really fascinating about that. What happened with that play is that the score is 0-0, and quarterback Carr tosses a bomb to this wide receiver named Cooper for 51 yards. That's half a football field, people. That's a big play. So that mistake of not lining up, like kindergartners can figure out how to line up, right? Those few inches cost them a massive, wide-open, busted play. Here's what is the fascinating part, and here's my question to you. Why didn't the offending player, this large offensive lineman who was way bigger than the ref and could have broken him in half if he wanted to, why didn't the offending player or the coaches or the fans appeal to the fact that he's basically a good football player? Wait a minute. He most of the time lines up the right way. Could you reconsider? We really need those yards look, this is going to be really embarrassing because they don't get much glory anyways unless they make a mistake. Then they're going to zoom in on this guy's face. Could you spare him the embarrassment? Do you notice that none none of the fans, none of the coaches, the player himself, we have a ref in the room who's laughing the hardest at this. None of the refs, none none of the fans, none of the coaches, none of the players ever do that. Why? Because it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant that they're basically rule followers they broke the rule, and so they are dinged the 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 penalty. Here's, here's the point I'm driving home. Many people, millions, their church today will be December football. December football is fun to watch because it's starting to matter a little bit. It's just it's fun. I love it. And they are going to watch a game played with very specific ins and outs boundaries. They're going to see authority put in place. And there's going to be no argument. There's going to be a sense that, yes, this is the way the game is played. This is order. And yet, remove themselves from that situation, and they will be their own coaches, they will be their own owners, and they will be their own ref. And that is how they live their life. Millions of Americans will do this. I want to read for you a passage today that lays out these three exchanges. You'll see them right from the text. It's starting in Romans Uh, Chapter 1, verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God, that is a weighty, revealing, relevant list of evil. We don't have to dig deep to understand what these look like. They are on display. God, this morning as we open the word, we just sang this, that all authority is yours. God, that just now we would submit ourselves in advance to what you have to say to us. Help me be clear and accurate. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get to the exchanges, a quick word about revelation. Two revelations are really critical to Paul's reasoning and Paul's argument. The first um, is found in 17. It's the revelation of God's righteousness. That God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And then in verse 18, we see that God's wrath is being revealed. (coughs) Like all revelations, these depend on knowledge. Knowledge. Revelation always does, right? And there's two general, uh, there's two kinds of knowledge. There's general <coughs> revelation, two kinds of revelation, excuse me, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is that which we see in nature. Ben walked us through some pictures, and we see some of God's divine attributes and divine character as seen in nature. Special, special revelation are those supernatural acts. We see them in the Old Testament. We see them in the life of Jesus Christ. We see them signs given to the early church that would go along and they would validate the message that is being proclaimed about Jesus Christ. The Bible that you're holding in your hand or on your phone is one such special revelation. Here's the point that's really important to make before we move forward is this. God does not judge us on what we don't know. God does not judge us on what we don't know. Let's go back to the offensive lineman for a minute. If he had no clue that a new rule had been invented that week, that if you don't line up within an inch of each other in line, then there's a penalty, and then he were flagged for it, and none of the fans, coaches, owners were informed of it, there would be an outrage, right? Pictures of goalposts going down the whole nine yards. It would be it would be ridiculous. God doesn't judge us on what we don't know. Look in your, um, or look at this picture for a minute. Mankind is responsible in the exchange. This picture is an accurate represent, uh, representation of this. It's not that the gift that was given was stolen from them. It's not that it was misplaced, it's that it was exchanged. And exchange involves two willing parties, one giving the other in exchange for something else. We're going to make this trade. It's an agreement that's been, been come to. Can I get someone to stand and read uh, Romans 1.20 for a moment? Verse 20, just stand up and read that one, that one verse. Go ahead, Gria, real loud. So man's problem is not knowledge. Man's problem is a lack to acknowledge. It's not, a, it's not a problem of knowledge, it's a, it's a lack of acknowledging God as God. Think about this, one can only suppress the truth if they know it. If they don't know it, it's called something different, ignorance, right? I was ignorant of that. But if I suppress the truth, if I suppress something, it means I possess it already. So this passage clearly talks about the suppression of truth. We're about to celebrate, or we're in the season of Advent, of celebrating light coming to all men. Gospel of John, chapter 1. That the light has come to all men. Every single person you ever meet has been given a conscience. It's a real thing. It's made up of two words. It means with knowledge. That is, what you are doing is with knowledge. The reason people can say basically good points to some level of standard, does it not? I love that shirt. Define good. What do you mean by that exactly? These are the questions we wrestle with in morality. Here's why I'm pounding on this so much. The gifts that were given and traded away are foundational to our lives. Worship and knowledge and marriage. These affect my life every single day. Those three things are foundational to making me who I am. Those are the gifts that are in view this morning, and these were handed over. And there's a term called culpability. Culpability means there was responsibility. They were accountable for their actions. If it's done in ignorance, you're not culpable. You're not accountable for that. But if you're suppressing the truth, then you are accountable for your actions. I want you to note that when the exchange happened, they didn't stop worshiping. They worshiped something different. They didn't stop thinking or having knowledge. They began to have that be a distorted thing. They didn't stop relating to each other. They related to each other in a way that wasn't pleasing to God. It was outside of the design. So let's look at these one by one. This first exchange is a bit of a, of a, of a review because it's up in verse 23. But they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal living things. People knowingly worship lesser goods than God. And will cling to it. The result, 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart. Has been talked about last week. The wrath of God here isn't an active pouring out of wrath. That's coming. Paul's going to point to that in chapter 2. There's a future day where that's coming. This is a, a different kind of wrath of a, of a pulling away. An allowance for people to get their way and feel the consequences without God. C.S. Lewis has a quote. I couldn't find it. Some of you can find it and get it to me before second service. Um, But he says something to this effect, that ultimately people get what they want. If you don't want God and you live a life with no God, guess what you get for an eternity? You get what you want. It's a terrifying reality. If you want God and you pursue God, you get God. This is an example of God's wrath by pulling away. This word lust that he brings up is really, it literally means over-desire. Desire Desire itself is not a bad thing. Hear me. Desire is not a bad thing. It's a gift from God. But when desire becomes over-desire, good things become God things. And whenever a good thing, a gift given, becomes a God thing, terrible things happen with that. We could look around at so many different examples of this. Let's take career for a moment. If someone's career, which is a good thing, becomes a God thing, who gets devastated by that? The spouse and the family and everyone around them. This thing that was meant to be a gift and was meant to be something that would, would enhance worship and enhance what, what that person's relationship with God is like has become something totally different. And we see that really, really common here in the Silicon Valley. We could talk about family being that, money being that, a whole bunch of things. But verse 24, the context clearly says this. The lust in view is any sexual activity outside of marriage. It's sort of a broad thing in view, and it's really going after sexual immorality. There are some major vice lists in the Bible, virtues and vice, right? So these are things you don't want to be about. Every one of them includes sexual sin, and usually they head the list. Let me give you two examples. Um, On your notes already is Galatians 5.19. Here's here's how it starts. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now, the list goes on, but three different ways of saying some similar things, that sexual immorality heads the list of the works of the flesh. Here's the second one, Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, colon, here's the list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are two of the major vice lists that start off with a bang, that shout to us in importance that sexual sin is to be put to death or it will put you to death. This morning, we're going to spend most of our time on the third exchange. The third exchange talks about same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. And I want to spend the bulk of the time, even though this passage isn't a passage specifically about homosexuality, it is, I think, the longest passage dealing with homosexuality. I want to spend the bulk of our time there because of a couple of reasons. One is because of the cultural climate we live in. This is being discussed at not just news levels, not just personal office water cooler talk, but in schools, in policy, in government. You cannot turn a corner in our city and not come across this topic. So I want to hit this head on and spend the bulk of our time there. So how serious are these other sins? 1 Corinthians 6 9 says this Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen, neither the sexually immoral, there it is, heading the list again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Can I point out some great news in this devastating list? Here it is. What it means to be a Christian is to be on the receiving end of healing. You're a passive recipient in the process of how you get yanked out of being ensnared in sin and brought into God's marvelous light. Here's how the very next verse reads. And such were some of you. Man, some of you have trusted me with your stories. It's hard to stand up here and just not weep in praise. To say such were were some of you. Such was I. And here's what it goes on to say. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You didn't do any of that yourself. That's why we sing. That's why we praise God That's why we call out and remember and say freely and humbly, God, it's your work that's done a miracle in my life. No matter how you were born, every single child of God must be born again. And it happens the same for all of us. We come as children. We come humble. We come needy. or We don't come at all. We don't get it. And God takes natural bents and he redeems them for his glory and kingdom work. Here's the second exchange. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What was the result? The result was a role reversal in worship. What's the creation account? The creation account is I've created all of this for you, man and woman. And I've made you partners with me in ruling this kingdom. Now subdue it. Watch over it. Tend to it. A farmer likes to tell the story of a suburban guy who comes and comes out to his place and he says, man, isn't, you know, isn't God's creation beautiful? And he kind of laughs to himself because the city guy doesn't get how much work goes into subduing natural creation. The beauty that he's seeing is a garden. A garden must be tended and weeded and cut down and cut back and it's hard work. And the farmer immediately gets, and he says something to the effect of, well, if it was just God's creation, you should look over here and see this. This is God's creation subdued and partnered with and having my ingenuity to help water these things and grow these things and produce these things. And this is the created aura. This is what God gave us to do. What happens when the truth of God is exchanged for a lie, a role reversal in worship such that we begin to serve um, inanimate wooden things? That's what happens. Where's Lou? Lou Toller's our world traveler right now. I gave her a hug, so I said I have to catch you while you're in our zip code because she's going all over the place. We have yet to compare China travels, but I saw some pictures in China. She's traveled enough to understand that when you go around the world, you see that human beings are unceasing worshipers. And it's so easy when you look in a different culture to learn and see and understand and really try to get your head around, how are these people thinking? What are they they believing in and hoping for and fearful of? And it comes out in what they worship. And all around the world today, people are sacrificing great personal sacrifice for creatures, for the created thing rather than the creator. And the effects are devastating. The step from idolatry to immorality is one small step for mankind. What happened in the original garden? The original garden was this. Satan, the enemy, comes and he tempts in this way after questioning what God said. Did God really say? It's a twisting, right? Let's reinterpret. Let's reenvision what God said and let's think about this a little bit. Did God really say? The temptation comes. And the original man and woman take the bait and make this trade. They make the trade of loving and worshiping and serving the one true God to becoming their own God. You can be just like him. And we, relatives of our first parents, are still feeling the devastating effects of what it is to be our own God. If a person is his own God, he can do as he pleases with no fear of judgment. And guess who he's accountable to? Himself. We are more and more, as a country, heading toward what we saw in the book of Judges, which is everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Society can't even get this right. Government can't get this right. I've got to figure this out. So there's. Thousands upon millions of little judges running around, doing what's right in their own eyes as their own God. The result of this kind of self-deception is self-indulgence. Self-deception leads to self-indulgence. That brings us to our third exchange, natural relations for those contrary to nature. Verse 26 and 27. What's the result? The result is due penalty for their error and that God gave them up for a debased mind. Let me take a little bit of controversy away. Paul is not saying something new and radical about the human assessment, nor about sexual behavior. He is simply reiterating what's found all through the Old Testament up to this point. So he's he's not saying something new and groundbreaking, but in total agreement with Old Testament law. That homosexual behavior is not just different or alternative but shameless and deadly. Same-sex behavior is the word I'm going to use over and over because it's different from same-sex attraction. Let me give you the quick distinction. Same-sex behavior is same-sex attraction that has been given birth, carried to term, and is now being carried out as sin. Doesn't every wrongdoing start in the mind? Of course it does. We think something. And for a Christian, what is a Christian response to a wicked, evil thought? What are we to do? We're to take it captive. We're to not carry it to term and act on it. So same-sex same sex attraction, almost every person I've had this conversation with, in fact, in fact I, can't, I can't think of a single one for sure, and I've had many, many, many conversations with people, some who struggle with same-sex attraction, some who don't struggle with it at all. They celebrate it. But every single person I've ever talked to about this, um, has indicated, if they're open enough, that it was unwanted. Some haven't told me if it's unwanted or not wanted, but none of them said, I wanted this, I pursued this, I sought this out. So I'm going to use same-sex behavior because I think it's different than same-sex sex attraction. I'll tip my hand early and say this. There is nothing in the Bible positive about homosexual behavior. Homosexual relationships. The Bible has nothing good to say about it, and the Bible has plenty to say on it. An author, Luke Timothy Johnson, who's a well-respected New Testament scholar and supports homosexual behavior, speaks on this issue with refreshing candor when he says this. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal to another authority when we declare same-sex unions can be holy and good. Remember, New Testament scholar who's on the side of homosexual marriage. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. I want to say at the start of this, we had some interesting conversation over, um, over our last family party with extended family around. One of the great things about Thanksgiving and Christmas is you get the different generations together. And I recognize that there are, different, there are generational differences in here as we talk about this topic. Many in the younger generation just have no issue with this whatsoever. Many Christians in younger generations say, live and let live. This is not a big deal. Uh, this is what's giving a black eye to Christians. Uh, many in the older generation don't even want to talk about it they just go oh i just let's let's move on to something different it's so different than what they grew up with that that it's just kind of you know and here's my here's my invitation and my challenge to you this is not the time to bury our heads in the sand and kind of let this be someone else's issue and hope this kind of goes away because i think it's really complex and i'm not a biblical scholar so i don't know what to think about it It's not the time for that. This is not going away. This is as close as kids in our school system wrangling through, wrestling through, how do I be a Christian and have some things imposed on me that are absolutely against uh, what I'm taught in the scriptures. I want you to know there are many revisionist authors and theologians out there who are trying to make ambiguous that which isn't. And I would call your mind back to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Let's look into it. Here are a couple of the key things that are gone after. Paul knew nothing of long-term committed same-sex relationships or else he wouldn't have condemned him. This is what was going on in in ancient times. This was men with boys. This was unwanted. This was rape. This was something totally different. Nonsense. All kinds of extra-biblical authorship says that's totally not true that Paul didn't, wasn't not making allowance for that. Secondly, they'll go into the wording of, it's not going against God's nature, but their own nature. So in other words, if your own bent is this, don't go against that, or else that's the nature that's being discussed in this passage. Now here's what I know. For many in this room, perhaps for most in this room, it's not a matter of nuanced understanding of specific Greek words that are problematic. Here it is. You ready? It's far more visceral. It's far more just human. It's this. It doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. I have a daughter, I have a son, I have a cousin, I have a neighbor, I have a friend, I have a coworker. They're amazing people and I love them dearly. They didn't choose this for themselves. And you're going to tell me that God would deny the loving relationship that I have with my spouse, that just doesn't seem fair. I don't know if that's hitting a nerve with you, but if it is, let me plead with you. For this generation and for generations coming up behind us, we need to get this right. We need to come at this with somewhat of a dispassioned point of view And we ought to say, what does the scriptures teach us? What would Jesus do? What would he endorse? What would he not be a part of? The way that we should talk about this, I got this directly from a book that's on your outline called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? It's short enough that I think many of you can read it. It's written by a pastor back east whom I really respect. And I'm going to take these directly from him, but I think it's really helpful. How should we speak about same-sex attraction, marriage, relationships? And he gives some different categories. If we're talking to cultural elites who despise us and our beliefs, we should be bold and courageous with people like that. If we're talking to strugglers who fight against same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic as fellow strugglers with different sin names. If we are talking to sufferers who have been mistreated by the church, we want to be winsome and humble. If we are speaking with people who are shaky Christians, who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we want to be persuasive and persistent. If we're talking to those who are living as the Scriptures would not have them live, we want to be straightforward and earnest with them. And if we're talking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear persons who identify as gay or lesbian, we want to be clear and corrective. With this list in mind, let me address the church as the pastor, recognizing that we probably have some level of this list, maybe everyone in this list, in the room this morning. As I walk you through Paul's argument, it's really simple. Paul appeals to the creator and he appeals to creation. Ben correctly pointed this out last week. Animals, birds, creeping things in verse 23 directly mirror, in fact, identical wording of what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Exact words found in Genesis 1.26. Go back and listen to that section of Ben's message. Then the language of a lie in verse 25, shameless acts in verse 27, and sentence of death in verse 32 are all allusions to the fall in Genesis 3. Paul is going back with his Jewish readers to something they would have known explicitly because it's told over and over, creation story, Genesis 1:26, and then the fall by chapter 3. And he's coming back to that. Here's why that's so key. This is not going against what's natural or unnatural, I should say. Same-sex behavior is not unnatural in the way, to use an illustration from the book I just referenced, that a deaf person might talk with their hands in an unnatural way. It's not wrong, it's just different. That's not what he's talking about. He's going back to the creation account. He's calling to mind all that the scriptures have to say about the complementary design of male and female found in creation. To say otherwise, as revisionist theologians are saying, is to scream, we're telling the wrong creation story. God got it wrong. He's telling the wrong creation story in all of nature if this is what's blessed and holy I want you to get an animal in your mind for a minute, a species of animal. That species of animal, if we took the time, we could go around the room and we could rattle off 80 or 90 species right here, and here's what's powerful to look at. Every one of those animals that you just called out has not just corresponding sexual components to them, but complementary sexual body parts designed by God, built in by God. This was enough for Paul because it was enough for Jesus. Jesus was questioned about divorce. And when he was questioned about divorce, the ripping apart of that which God brought together, Jesus goes back to the creation account. He doesn't make allowance for it. He goes back to the creation account. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He put his stamp of approval on heterosexual marriage. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus affirms the biblical relational formula, which is one man plus one woman equals one flesh for all time. That's what he was saying. Another book on your list I read this year written by Rosaria Butterfield, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She went from being a postmodern lesbian professor heading the queer studies at Syracuse University to being the wife of a reformed pastor and a homeschooling mother. It's a fascinating read. And she said this, when I was living in that lifestyle with my partner, she said there was no regret and there was no shame. She says the buzzwords that are around this movement are accurate because I lived it. Gay rights and gay pride. She said the rights and the pride, those two words accurately reflect the impenitent human heart that is wrapped up in this. And it's been an exchange. And until God shone the light for her, she had no regret, no shame. We live in a world where shame is placed on things that are honorable and honor is placed on things that are shameful. Here's a quick question for you. Think about this. If Monday morning you were to come out boldly and vocally as a person in support of the virtues and blessings of same-sex attraction on the one hand, Or you were to come out as a Jesus is the only way to God, gospel preaching Christian. Which would earn you applause and honor? Which would earn you shame and jeering from a majority of the people in your world? Food for thought. Christian, don't expect better treatment from a lost world in need of a savior than Jesus experienced. I'm not going to take the time to unpack the next 24 sins listed here, but catch this. Every one of them are present and prevalent in our world, in our city, in our home. We haven't advanced as mankind so far away from when this letter was written that we've somehow out, you know, outgrown it, evolved out of all this wickedness. We look at this list and go, yeah, I know each of those. The most devastating thing is found near the end. Paul specifically calls out the sin of giving approval to those who practice such things. Here's my final warning before we close. Beware of what you practice and beware of what you endorse. Same author as uh, the first book that I mentioned, wrote a book um, or wrote a, a blog article And he just said this. He said, for those Bible-believing, Jesus-serving Christians that now wave the rainbow flag and celebrate same-sex relationships, a couple of questions to wrestle with. He actually gives 40. And he says this. These are not snarky, trying to be zingers. I just I just want to ask. I'm going to give you three that were most impactful to me. Number one, how long have you believed that gay marriage is something to be celebrated? Number two, what Bible verses led you to change your mind? And number three, what arguments would you use to explain to Christians in Africa, Asia, and South America that their understanding of homosexuality is basically incorrect and your new understanding of homosexuality is not culturally conditioned? There's a bunch more on that list that are challenging. Christian, let's be the agent in culture that brings back respectful discourse you know that we're to live at peace with all people so far as it depends on us? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could bring back polite, respectful discourse, heated at times, but right here in the church family about this very volatile topic, which many of you sit on different sides of it, and I'm wide open to, dis- to discuss that with you. Let's carry the spirit and tone of how we discuss things in this room and carry it out into what we just sang we are called to be, which is a light to the world. I want to highlight one final great exchange. Luther called the gospel the great exchange. John Piper sums it up this way. We need righteousness to be acceptable to God, but we don't have it. What we have is sin. God has what we need and don't deserve righteousness, and we have what God hates and rejects, sin. What is God's answer to this situation? His answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died in our place, God lays our sin on Christ and punishes them in Him. And in Christ's obedience to death, God fulfills and vindicates His righteousness and imputes or credits it to us. Our sin on Christ, His righteousness on us. You can't love Christ too much. You can't think about him too much or thank him too much or depend upon him too much. This is the gospel. This great exchange happens for us, not by works, but by faith alone. Let me say, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, I want to apologize. I've been convicted this week that my own silence on it from this specific spot has potentially left you isolated. You know what the enemy wants you to do with your sin? Keep it quiet and isolate you. You're the only one who feels this way. You're the only one who struggles with this. So I apologize. Let me also say this. Repent of it. Repent of it and start talking with a brother or sister about it. Open yourself up to someone that you can trust. I pray to God that churches are safe places to discuss our sin. The life of a Christian is one of repentance. Those of you who like to fill in blanks, let me give you these very quickly. What do we do? We guard the gift. We guard the gift. We don't want to make lousy trades. We've been given things we don't want to give it away. First Timothy 6.20, he says, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Man, I thought about that passage in light of this topic. Nails it. Secondly, don't endorse death-producing sin. Realize that we breathe air every day that is the epicenter of moving and emanating this cultural, cultural value around this country, the Bay Area. So Christians, stop and think. What does God do? God judges rightly. Secondly, God creates. Ben said it well last week. Night after night and day after day are sermons being preached in the skies. Go out and pay attention. And what does he do? He saves. Those who were formerly blinded, he makes them to see. Those who were formerly bound, he sets us free. God, thank you so much for this great exchange that we celebrate and sing about. God, we have been healed. And we praise you for doing the work of that, and we trust you to be the one who will complete it. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.